there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Listen closely. That's not just paint rolling on a wall. It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select Eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller, lightly cradled in his hands, applying just the right amount of paint. Hmm. It's like hearing poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode features discussions of extreme violence and genocide that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. It was April 15, 1994. 19-year-old Francine Niitegaka waited breathlessly in a large brick-walled church together with her fiancé, her family, and nearly 5,000 of her fellow tribespeople. The refugees had been here for five days. During that time, soldiers and citizens had been ravaging Francine's Rwandan homeland, slaughtering every ethnic Tutsi they could find. But they had not yet entered the church of Nyamata, where the young mother and her companions were staying. Now, though, Francine could hear the attackers closing in. Men and boys were gathering outside the sanctuary, trampling through the dust and singing as they approached. Francine pulled her baby close. She knew the men outdoors were members of the ethnic Hutu majority, with whom her people had been fighting for years. And she had recently heard some of them in the streets, boldly proclaiming that all Tutsis must die. Nevertheless, Francine held out hope. In all the years of intertribal conflict she had witnessed, no one had dared breach the walls of the church. So, despite the gathering threat, she still believed that the danger might pass. Suddenly, Francine's world was shattered. The walls of the church exploded inward. The young mother reeled from the impact. Struggling to keep her head in the chaos, she saw Hutu men climbing through the gaps in the walls, carrying machetes, spears, and clubs. And as the men began to slaughter every Tutsi in sight, Francine realized this wasn't just another attack. This was genocide. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. 
Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. You can find episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is the first of two episodes on the Rwandan genocide. This horrific event occurred in the spring of 1994, when a paramilitary group called the Inter-Ahamwe set about exterminating the Tutsi people and anyone who sympathized with them. The killing went on for 100 days, stopping only when a rebel group called the Rwandan Patriotic Front, or RPF, finally took control of the country. This week, we'll explore the outbreak of the Rwandan Civil War through the eyes of several individuals who lived it. Next week, we'll follow their desperate attempts to escape a government-backed genocide that wiped out around half a million Tutsis. The Republic of Rwanda is a verdant, hilly country in East Africa that, for centuries, had been inhabited by three main tribes. The Twa, who are hunter-gatherers, the Hutus, traditionally farmers, and the Tutsis, known for raising cattle. These three tribes coexisted in relative harmony until the early 1900s, when Belgium took over the region. The Belgian colonizers considered subjects with European characteristics to be more valuable than anyone else. So because the Tutsis were naturally tall, with lighter skin and eyes than the Hutus and the Twa, the Belgians believed that they were a superior race. They structured their colonial government in such a way that the Tutsis received far more power and control than the other tribes. As a result, Tensions between the Tutsis and the Hutus skyrocketed. This was the divided world in which Francine Niyitegaka's parents were born and raised. Both Tutsis, they watched for years as resentment toward their tribe grew into contempt and hatred. In the late 1950s, they saw a wave of nationalism sweep through the country, sparking demands for the Hutu majority to seize control. Both groups militarized, rapidly escalating ethnic tension and bringing Rwanda to the brink of civil war. Then, in 1959, disaster struck. Young Tutsi extremist seized a Hutu politician and beat him to the verge of death. Almost overnight, the interracial conflict that had been simmering in Rwanda for decades flared out of control. Angry Hutus swept through the streets, attacking and murdering Tutsi civilians. Many Tutsis fled to neighboring countries. Those who remained, including Francine's parents, saw tens of thousands of their people massacred in a nationwide outbreak that became known as the Wind of Destruction. 
The Belgians responded to the situation by trying to separate the two groups, a move that would have disastrous consequences. Beginning around 1960, they forcibly relocated Hutus and Tutsis all over the country. Francine's parents were bused to the sparsely populated region of Nyamata, where they were left on a hillside and told to make their new homes. Unsurprisingly, simply shuffling the ethnic groups around did little to stem the violence. Early on in the 60s, Belgium had had enough. They granted Rwandans their independence and withdrew from the country. The Hutu majority immediately seized control of Rwanda, electing nationalist leader Gregoire Kayibanda as their president. Refusing to see their now entrenched enemies in power, Tutsis rejected the election results and attempted to assassinate the new president. The Hutus retaliated with more violence of their own. And so it continued for the next 30 years, with aggression and reprisals resulting in over 70,000 Rwandans dead. In 1990, the Hutu dictator, Juvenal Habyarimana, formed a new paramilitary group to confront the Tutsis. It would be known as the Interahamwe. Comprising roughly 30,000 soldiers, police officers, and citizens, the Interahamwe were trained and armed by the Habiyerimana government. Francine's parents, who by now were raising their children in Nyamata, were used to violence. But even they couldn't imagine the horrors this new organization would unleash. In the spring of 1994, 19-year-old Francine and her parents began to hear rumors that the Interahamwe was preparing for something big. Knowing the hatred Hutus bore their people, they feared that the wind of destruction was about to blow again. And the Niyategekas weren't the only ones who sensed danger in the air. 32-year-old teacher, Innocent Rilaliza, a lifelong resident of Nyamata, noticed growing hostility from the Hutus in his neighborhood. He began to worry that he and his family might become targets of the other tribe's rage. Then, one night in the spring of 1994, Innocent's fears came sharply into focus. He was walking home from work with a Hutu colleague, discussing their nation's politics, when the conversation took a dark turn. Innocent's co-worker, whom he had known for years, turned to him and said, Innocent, your people will all be wiped out. I must tell you that you are all going to die. For Innocent, this was a call to action. Like so many other Rwandans, he was used to war and already had some idea of how to survive. He began taking basic precautions, like not staying out late and avoiding Hutu-owned establishments in an effort to circumvent danger. But caution would not be enough this time. On April 6, 1994, a single act led to nationwide tragedy. That day, the Hutu dictator, Juvenal Habyarimana's plane, was shot out of the sky.
No one ever conclusively identified who was behind the attack. But when Javier Amana was killed in the crash, his Hutu successors blamed the Tutsis. Literally overnight, a nationwide alert went out over the radio, calling the Hutu paramilitary group, known as the Interahamwe, to mobilize. 39-year-old shopkeeper Marie-Louise Kagiri heard the attacks begin from inside her shop in the center of Niamate. She heard trucks rumbling into town, as well as people shouting angrily in the streets. Then, panicked neighbors began rushing into her shop, telling her that Hutus were attacking Tutsis out in the open with government-issued machetes. According to retired police officer and survival expert Fred Tyrell, machetes are among the most commonly used weapons in popular uprisings. Part of that is due to the fact that they are relatively cheap and easy to conceal. It's also due to their effectiveness. With little training, a fighter can quickly wound, dismember, or even decapitate a victim. Tyrell points out that defending oneself from machete attack, especially unarmed, is close to impossible. He states, in most cases, your best option will be to get away from your attacker as quickly as possible. And this is exactly what Marie-Louise decided to do. Although it was too late to flee, the shopkeeper and her loved ones could at least remove themselves from the line of fire. Together with her husband, Leonard, Marie-Louise retreated to her home, which had a courtyard surrounded by a strong wall. The couple barricaded themselves, their family, and as many neighbors as they could inside the heavy gate, praying that it would keep them safe. Meanwhile, thousands of other Tutsis around Yamata were searching for refuge. 19-year-old Francine and her fiancé, Theophile decided to take shelter in the church, like Marie-Louise, putting a physical barrier between themselves and their attackers. But as teacher Innocent Rilaliza would soon learn, those walls would not be enough to protect them this time. On Monday, April 11th, as Innocent was preparing to start the school day, he heard gunshots in the streets. He saw soldiers driving into town, along with members of the Interahamwe paramilitary. They began attacking upper-class Tutsis, pounding them with clubs and machetes. Panicked, Innocent and a crowd of his fellow tribe members rushed to City Hall. For two hours, they sheltered in the courtyard of the government building, hoping the mayor would come out and offer them protection. Instead, when the mayor finally emerged, he announced, if you go home, you will be killed. If you flee into the bush, you will be killed. If you remain here, you will be killed. Hearing these words, Innocent was gutted with fear, not just for himself, but for his wife and children. If the government refused to prevent the killings, how could any of them hope to survive? In Innocent's mind, there were only two possibilities. One was the church, which he now feared would be no safer than any place else. The other was a forest on the outskirts of town, a shoddy refuge as he would soon know all too well. Forced to make the best choice he could in a terrible situation, 
Innocent told his wife to take the children and join the thousands sheltering in the church. Then he went alone in the forest on the hill. There, hiding with about 2,000 others among the eucalyptus trees, Innocent would have a clear view of the horrors that were about to unfold. Coming up, we'll see through the eyes of the terrified residents of Nyamata how a spate of attacks evolved into systematic genocide. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. And now, back to the story. It was April 6, 1994, after the assassination of Hutu dictator Juvenal Habyarimana, hundreds of thousands of Tutsis all over Rwanda hurried into hiding. In the region of Nyamata, 39-year-old shopkeeper Marie-Louise and her husband Leonar gathered their neighbors behind the wall surrounding their home. As the day wore on, more and more frightened Tutsis came to the house and begged for shelter. Leonar told the youngest and strongest to sneak away to the forest where they might be able to outrun their attackers. As for the rest, they hunkered down in the courtyard with nothing to do but wait and pray. On the morning of April 7th, after a sleepless night, Marie-Louise was startled by the sound of several men clamoring outside the gate. Realizing their attackers were upon them, she immediately looked to her husband. Leonard appeared to have seen this coming. With almost no hesitation, he took out a set of keys and walked toward the gate. By now, the aging shopkeeper had witnessed more violence than he could bear. He had saved himself in the past by running away. This time, however, he was determined not to run. Thinking that perhaps the men would just kill him and leave the others in peace, Leonar unlocked the gate. By offering to sacrifice himself for the group, Leonar was acting contrary to his natural survival instinct. This is known, both in philosophy and in science, as altruism. And for biologists, such behavior represents a conundrum. According to the principles of natural selection, it should be impossible for a person to act sanely and knowingly in a manner that will lead to his death. However, evolutionary biologist William Donald Hamilton 
posited that self-preservation may be superseded by the needs of the species. He devised a mathematical formula, now known as Hamilton's Rule, that defines a point at which self-sacrifice becomes a viable means of species survival. Perhaps if the Tutsis were facing a mere matter of natural selection, Leonor's death would have helped save them. But as the terrified victims would soon learn, the process they were facing was something else entirely. Immediately after the shopkeeper's husband opened the gate, a soldier shot him dead. Then literally stepping over Leonard's dead body, the Interahamwe pushed into the courtyard. They grabbed children first, laid them out in a line on the ground, and began hacking them to pieces with machetes. This horrific act caused Marie-Louise to realize once and for all that this was different from the violent attacks she'd witnessed before. It was a systematic, determined effort to annihilate her entire people, a genocide happening right before her eyes. According to Dr. Gregory Stanton of the international organization Genocide Watch, genocide develops in multiple stages. The first stage is classification, for example, dividing the nation up into Hutus and Tutsis. Later comes dehumanization, which occurred in Rwanda when Hutus began referring to Tutsis on the radio as cockroaches. Then comes organization, polarization, and preparation, all of which went on throughout the Rwandan Civil War. And now Marie-Louise was witnessing the seventh stage, extermination. When faced with an organized onslaught of such magnitude, there's little one can do to survive other than flee. And that's exactly what Marie-Louise did. With no time to mourn her husband's or the children's death, she ran with her mother-in-law around the backside of the house. There, they found a hiding place behind a pile of tires where they waited in terror and silence. For a brief time, it seemed that the rest of the horror might pass them by. Marie-Louise could hear the men getting distracted as they began looting the house. Perhaps if she and her mother-in-law just waited long enough, the killers would forget about them and go on their way. But the older woman soon tired of waiting, overcome with the sorrow of her son's death and shattered by the violence she had witnessed, Marie-Louise's mother-in-law left their hiding place. She walked around in front of the tires, sat down on the ground, and waited in exhaustion to meet her fate. This fatal decision may indicate that Marie-Louise's mother-in-law was having an acute stress reaction. This is a severe psychological response to extreme trauma, such as the women had just experienced and it may cause the afflicted to feel emotional numbness and to engage in reckless or self-destructive behavior. Tragically, for Marie-Louise's mother-in-law, the decision to leave her hiding place did turn out to be destructive. A short time later, a couple of looters saw her sitting in front of the pile of tires. Without ceremony, they slaughtered her with machetes, unaware that her daughter-in-law was hiding a few feet away. If the elderly woman had only managed to hold out a little longer, she would have seen that the danger did in fact pass, at least temporarily. 
The looters left the house around nightfall, giving Marie-Louise an opportunity to get up and take stock of what had happened. The sight that met the 39-year-old's eyes was almost indescribable. Every person who had taken refuge in her home the day before was dead, all except a single child, whom she found standing in the courtyard, shell-shocked. As far as she knew, Marie-Louise had not one living ally, and she was surrounded by people who would kill her the moment they saw her face. Still, the shopkeeper did all she could to ensure that she and the child would not meet that fate. She hid the young Tutsi in a nearby woodshed. Then she sneaked into the backyard of a Hutu neighbor's house, where she hid in an empty doghouse for the next three days. Despite the ferocity of the attack in Marie-Louise's home, there were still worse terrors in store for the region of Nyamata. Over the next few days, mobilized paramilitary soldiers continued to pour into the region. They marked all houses that belonged to Tutsis, killed those they found in the streets, and even murdered any Hutus known to sympathize with them. The Nyamata extermination campaign began in full force. No longer would murder be spurred by an outburst of rage. Now, it's simply part of a process. The procedure began in the town of Nyamata just before noon that day. 19-year-old Francine Niyategaka heard it start from inside the church, where she was crammed with nearly 2,000 other refugees. She listened as, outside the sanctuary, a group of men approached, whistling and singing. She wondered, were these men really coming to kill them? If so, why did they sound so content? The young mother had little time to wonder, because shortly after the men arrived, the walls of the church exploded. Thousands of people screamed and stampeded for the exits. Meanwhile, the Interahamwe swarmed through the holes in the walls, gripping machetes, spears, and clubs. They swung and stabbed at their unarmed victims, crushing skulls and hacking off limbs. Francine watched in total bewilderment as the men butchered her neighbors. As they did, they continued to sing and chant, saying, here we are, here we are, and this is how we prepare Tutsi meat. Separated from her fiance and family in the chaos, she could barely clear her mind enough to figure out what to do. And just like Marie Louise a few days earlier, Francine realized that her only hope for survival was to run for her life. The church was in pandemonium. Thousands of people shoving, trampling, screaming as their loved ones were slaughtered before their eyes. Through the chaos, Francine saw that the back door of the building was relatively unguarded. With no idea what had become of Theophile or her family, Francine had no choice but to make a run for it. She turned, preparing to traverse the melee in hopes of reaching the exit. But before she could take a step, she was struck on the back of the head. The horrific sights and sounds faded as Francine fell to the ground, unconscious. 
Meanwhile, a few miles away on the hillside, Innocent and around 2,000 other refugees watched the distant chaos in despair. They had heard the explosions and seen smoke from the grenades. Now, just as Innocent had feared, everyone in the church was being killed. And he knew that probably included his wife and children. Innocent had little time to dwell on the regret he felt for splitting up his family, because soon the attackers were upon him too. The Interahamwe surrounded the forest where Innocent and 2,000 others were hiding. They entered the copses in rows, singing and brandishing weapons. And the moment they sighted a Tootsie, the hunt was on. It was immediately clear to Innocent that his hiding place had a serious disadvantage. The forest was made up of eucalyptus trees, which are tall and widely spaced, offering little cover and no good places to hide. Without weapons or a refuge, Innocent and his companions were left with a single survival tactic, speed. In Innocent's words, they had to do the 100-yard dash in under nine seconds in hopes of outpacing their attackers and each other. While Innocent was literally running for his life in the forest, back in the church, Francine had come to a dead stop. She was facing a pile of horrifically butchered and mutilated bodies. It took her a moment to realize where she was and that she herself was not dead. Once the young woman had her bearings, it was back to the business of survival. She managed to sneak out the back door of the church without being noticed. Then she joined a band of survivors who had gathered behind the church. Together, the terrified Tootsies raced down the hill toward a new refuge, a place few had dared to enter, the Nyamwiza Marsh. Coming up, the Nyamatans brave a deadly marsh and life on the run. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. And now, back to the story. In the spring of 1994, the Hutu government-backed paramilitary force known as the Interahamwe spread across Rwanda, intent on killing every Tutsi they could find. Tutsis everywhere abandoned their homes and possessions to go into hiding. In the region of Nyamata, 39-year-old shopkeeper Marie Louise hid in a doghouse for days after the attacks began. And this had given her a good deal of time to think about her next move. 
One morning, Marie-Louise heard her Hutu neighbor stirring in the yard, and she decided it was time to take action. Marie-Louise emerged from her hiding place and greeted her neighbor, a military chief named Monsieur Florian, whom she had known for many years. As a Hutu, Florian very well might have killed her. But instead, he asked Marie-Louise what he could do to help. The shopkeeper had one simple request. She wanted her old neighbor to kill her. Clearly, Marie-Louise had determined from things she had seen and heard that she would never survive the conflict. Convinced that she would be killed, survival, so to speak, became a matter of maintaining her dignity. If Marie-Louise could be murdered at the hands of a friend, she would be saved the torture and humiliation of being cut to pieces by her enemies. As it turned out, Monsieur Florian had another idea. As a high-ranking official, he had a certain amount of influence that other Hutus didn't. So instead of killing Marie-Louise, he smuggled her and the surviving child with her into a safe house run by a Hutu woman he knew. Marie-Louise spent the next several days there with the child that she had rescued and a handful of other refugees. Whenever the Interahamwe came to the door, she would give her host some cash that she had hidden in her dress to bribe them into going away. All things considered, Marie-Louise was one of the lucky ones. Other refugees in the region who didn't have high-ranking Hutu friends soon found themselves in far more taxing conditions. And it may be fair to say that none were more difficult than those in the Nyamwiza Marsh. According to National Geographic, a marsh is an area of land where water covers ground for long periods of time. Unlike swamps, which are dominated by trees, marshes are usually treeless and dominated by grasses and other herbaceous plants. In the Nyamwiza Marsh, the dominant grass is papyrus, a tall, reed-like plant that grows in clumps, with openings for muddy water to flow underneath. Papyrus is famous for its role as a writing surface in ancient Egypt, but to Francine and the other Tutsis, who now sought refuge in its tangled roots, the plant was better known as the home of venomous snakes and disease-bearing insects. Francine's first impulse when taking shelter in the marsh was simply to hide among the foliage until the danger passed. But as she and her fellow Tutsis soon learned, Genocide can be a long-term affair, and for the next 30 days, she would have to spend all her daylight hours submerged in mud. Every day proceeded according to a schedule. At 9 a.m., as if punching a time clock, the Interahamwe would disperse through the region with their clubs and machetes. They would comb their assigned areas in groups, butchering anyone they found and singing as they worked. Then at 4 p.m., a whistle would blow, signaling the end of the workday. The murderers would then get back into their trucks and return to town, where they spent the evening carousing and relaxing in the abandoned homes of their Tutsi victims. For Francine, this meant that her days followed a schedule too, 
every morning, the 19-year-old would help carry all the surviving children into the marsh. She would cover them with leaves and coach them not to cry, to stay still and quiet until the day was over. Then, at 9 a.m., when the Interahamwe began to arrive, Francine and the other adults would wade into the marsh themselves. With the able-bodied assisting the weak, wounded, and infirm, they would spread out into the foliage and sink as deeply as they could into the mud. Then began a torturous seven-hour vigil as they waited and hoped that the killers would pass them by. During this period, silence was paramount. Any motion could draw the attention of a killer, and once spotted, the refugees would have little to no hope of escape. Fortunately, average temperatures in Yamata only reached about 80 degrees in the spring, so Francine and her fellow survivors didn't worry too much about heat stroke. However, being forced to lie still for hours in stagnant, muddy water made them easy prey for another deadly attacker, the mosquito. Papyrus swamps are harbors of many disease-bearing insects, but mosquitoes are perhaps the worst. In addition to being itchy and annoying, the tiny bugs are also carriers of the deadly malaria virus. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Malaria is a serious and sometimes fatal disease caused by a parasite that commonly infects a certain type of mosquito that feeds on humans. People who get malaria are typically very sick with high fevers, shaking chills, and flu-like illness. Although life-saving treatments for the sickness do exist, the Tutsis hiding in the swamp had no access to them. As a result, any infection sustained from a mosquito bite could easily turn fatal. Francine knew the dangers of being bitten by a disease-bearing mosquito, but attempting to swat one away would almost certainly be worse. Any movement in the marsh could draw the attention of a murderer. So, unnerving as it was, Francine was forced to remain still and hope that she would only suffer the lesser of the two evils. As Francine passed hour after hour in the marsh, she sometimes heard people being caught and slaughtered around her. And the Interahamwe, bent on quick extermination, didn't bother to bury the victims. So as time went on in this terrible routine, Francine was slowly surrounded by the corpses of her dead family and neighbors, their blood mixed with the water and the muck. This put Francine in still greater peril. Decomposing bodies are not dangerous per se, but if they harbored any kind of infectious bacteria prior to death, that bacteria can be transmitted to anyone who touches them. Even worse, pathogens such as syphilis, HIV, and Ebola are all carried in the bloodstream. So it was possible that by lying in water soiled with blood, Francine could have contracted any number of deadly diseases. Just like with the mosquitoes, however, the teen had little choice but to suffer in silence. The only glimmer of hope in Francine's day came at four o'clock each afternoon when the whistle sounded and the killers left the marsh. 
Then, she and her surviving companions could emerge from the watery hiding places and lie down on the grass to dry out. This temporary break in the killing was also a critical time for survivors to gather food and water to stave off hunger and dehydration. Those who were still relatively healthy would sneak into the fields to collect grains, raw beans, or any other food they could find. They would then return to the group to share their take with those too weak to fend for themselves. In addition to providing necessary nutrients for all the survivors, these nighttime gatherings served another function. They created an opportunity for the living to bond and grieve. Many of the survivors whom journalist John Hatsfield interviewed for his book, Life Laid Bare, remember how critically important this time of reconnection was. It not only confirmed to them that they were still living, it also helped them reflect on what they wanted to live for. Years later, Innocent would put this need eloquently, saying, people harbor mysterious reasons for wanting to survive. The more we died, the more we were prepared to die, and the faster we ran to win a moment of life. For us, if I may put it clumsily, the will to live is a fearsome primordial desire. Perhaps that fearsome desire is the only way to explain what kept these incredibly brave people going. They had no way out, and it was painfully evident that no one in the international community was coming to help them. All they could do was whatever it took to keep living, a day, an hour, or even one minute at a time. For Marie-Louise, who spent the first few days of the genocide in the home of a Hutu woman, Every minute that passed made her situation less sustainable. The Interahamwe were closing in. Day after day, sometimes more than once, they banged on the door of Marie-Louise's host and demanded larger and larger bribes to go away. Finally, after no more than a week of these intrusions, the Hutu woman had had enough. She told Marie-Louise that it was no longer safe to keep her there and she would have to find another way to survive. Once again, the Tutsi woman went to her old neighbor, Monsieur Florian, and for a second time, she asked him to kill her quickly so that she would not have to suffer at the hands of the Interahamwe. But again, the military chief refused. Instead, he asked her if she had enough money to pay for her own safe passage should he be able to arrange it. Marie-Louise gave him a roll of bills she kept hidden in her dress, hoping beyond hope that it would be enough to buy her life. Survival expert and multiple best-selling author Tim McWelch writes that in emergency situations, one of the most important tools for a survivor is money. This is particularly true of political emergencies, such as Marie-Louise was now facing. If one segment of society is still functioning more or less as usual, bribes can be used to solicit favors. And as McWelch puts it, nothing works better for bribery than cash. Sadly, while Marie-Louise had the cash on hand to attempt a bribe, tens of thousands of others in Yamata did not. 
They had to buy time by means of physical sacrifice. And for Francine, time was on the verge of running out. One morning, as the Interahamway began their daily ritual, Francine went into the marsh holding her child and assisting an old woman. She helped her elderly companion get situated by covering her with leaves. But before she could get a safe distance away, the attackers arrived. The men found the old woman first. Without even bothering to pull her out of the water, they cut the woman to pieces. Then, realizing that she probably had a helper nearby, the killers began rifling through the papyrus. They found Francine and her baby within seconds. First, the men slaughtered the child before Francine's very eyes. Then, they turned their blades toward the young mother. Francine must have been in shock. Nevertheless, she had the courage to voice a last request. She asked the men not to kill her in the blood and muck that already soaked her skin. Instead, she wanted to die on the grass. Francine's attacker paid little heed to her petition. They dragged her into the papyrus reeds and smashed a club into her forehead. For the second time in a few weeks, she was knocked unconscious. And this time, it was almost certain that she would never wake. Thanks for listening to Survival. We'll be back next week with the ultimate fate of our survivors and the aftermath of this horrific genocide. For more information on the Rwandan genocide, amongst the many sources we used, we found Jean Hatzfield's book, Life Laid Bare, The Survivors in Rwanda Speak, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Survival, for free, from your home, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Travis Clark. This episode of Survival was written by Megan Dane and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. Tim Johnson.